Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Just a quick program note in recognition of our subject, which is the now or now or now, I have given this session a haircut where I took all half-second intervals of quiet and reduced them to 0.2 seconds in recognition of Neil Cassidy's purchase on reality. And so you're going to find this podcast to be rapid pace as we try to get there now. So here we are with another exciting session of Baffling Combustions. My name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. (laughs) And I am Andrew McCarran. And today we're going to touch, we're going to encircle, and I dare say with our words, we're going to probe the nature of now. That is, it's a word, uh, now is spelled N. O-W, and it's it's happening right now. It's not happening before I said this, and it's not happening after I said this, but it's happening as I said this, elusively intertwining with your own experience with, with now, which Sparrow is now going to give us the threshold moment that will introduce us to what is now. And I would just like to add that when listeners hear the Now podcast, it will be now for them. And so later for us. It will be the past. And yet also could be the future. We could ourselves retune to this now and i guess it'll be a record i mean it reminds me of gertrude stein you know and her thesis of the impossibility of repetition um Mm. you know namely that every event changes circumstance and so it's not repetition because it includes itself um at any rate uh sparrow if you're if you're ready yeah, I'm ready. I've got the dictionary uh, open in front of me. So, no, um, mouth, no eyes, just ears. I like the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language. I have the third edition, which looks kind of uh, unabridged, but I don't think it's considered an unabridged dictionary. Um, and I always liked it. I discovered it when I went to Cornell because uh, I was just looking at the reference library and I saw that here's little photographs in the dictionary. Here's real people that I really know. O.J. Simpson famously in this dictionary. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, whom I grew up with, loyal listeners remember that I lived in the same housing project as him in my youth. Anyway, all sorts of, not just celebrities, you know, I feel like that dictionary for you, Sparrow, is endowed with the with a bit of the uh, the, pre- the now. Yeah, for, for me it is. Now. Maybe we each have a different now that we call now. I mean, there was something certainly very uh, modern to me about it the first time I saw it. So I'm going to read the first three definitions. There's many definitions of now. There's at least seven. But I think I'll stick with the first three. One, at the present time. Here's an example of that a phrase using that. Goods now on sale. The now aging dictator. That's another uh, 
example of the word now. <laughs> Number two, at once, immediately. Stop now. Number three, in the immediate past, very recently. Left the room just now. A, right, but you need a modifier in order to endow now with that sense. I guess so. Yeah, it's funny that so that it made it all the way. Um, speaker attached. Listen to number four, which I said I wasn't going to read. At this point in the series of events, then, <laughs> now can mean that. So when you say the ship was now listing to port and you're writing a uh, novel, the now refers to the past. So no, anyway, it refers Wait, oh, it does, then, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. now, uh, Elvers left the uh, gymnasium. Of course, it's now in your story, but it's all taking place in the past. So, weirdly, now can mean then. Anyway, it all comes from the old English new, which comes from the Latin nunc, meaning... Uh, now. And um, that's about as far as I've gotten in my vast uh, studies here. Yeah, I think the Proto-Indo-European is the same as the Old English. And you, which doesn't sound like now, it sounds like new. But oh, those right. vowels, they're slippery, and it could be new as now. It seems to be saying in my dictionary that it comes out of ko. K-O is the... Uh, is the proto uh, uh, ice as proto Sanskrit? But oh. I'm having trouble finding that co. There seem to be a couple of co's. Co co coco coconut coco coconut. In the uh, the mindfulness craze, there seems to be a real emphasis on being in the now. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, the power of now is the famous book by Eckhart Tolle. Uh, Sam says the last name is pronounced Tolle. I'm not. And uh, be here now. Yes. Ron Sparrow as a as a lifelong meditator what is your relationship to the now Does well the i mean oh man so andrew's just he he's going right for the jug jug vein he can't <laughs> he's like yeah enough of this kind not, of dancing not, around let not, us now oh. enter the true understanding of the impotence <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the, I like to go right into Abraham's tent. You know, I, I want to <laughs> And if not now, then when? But yes, great quote from the Jewish religion. I don't even know where it comes from. The uh, sayings of the fathers. If not now, when? What was it? What is the other part? Uh, if, if not, not me, now, who? when? If not, if not, then? No. I, <laughs> yeah, I got I can't remember it. And I'm supposedly a Jew. Well, anyway, I guess I'll just go into my wholesale attack on Eckhart Tolle. Because uh, my wife, uh, you know, now she's now she's now. a Christian scientist. She's been a Christian scientist for about 10 years, something like that. But right before that, she was an Eckhart Tolle person who was reading... There's only two books, at least by at that time, there were only two books by him. And she was reading his books and trying to pursue the moment. She was trying to live in the moment. And she was really driving herself crazy, uh, trying to absolutely be present. She couldn't do it, and she would get more and more frustrated the more she tried. And I would say to her, this guy, Eckhart Tolle, I did read one interview with him. I think he's completely wrong. Like, everything he says, he's like Jesus. <laughs> this is my opinion about Jesus. All of Jesus's advice is wrong. Like pray unceasingly. Is that Jesus? Did he say that? Um, or is that Paul? It, 
I don't know. I, I, I don't don't remember it as something that Jesus said. But, yeah, but, maybe yeah. you. it's not in your red letter edition. Anyway, whatever it is Jesus said, I think I happen to believe all his uh, advice is wrong. And I think Eckhart Tolle is the same way. Like, first of all, we're all in the moment. There's nowhere else you can be but the moment. You know, when people say, I want to be in the moment, what they're really saying is, my mind is driving me insane because I'm constantly thinking about things that basically are in the past and the future. That is probably true. Their mind probably is driving them crazy. But but that first of all, you're in the moment, whether or not you think you're in the moment. Where is there to be except the moment? That's the only place you can be. And how can you prove that you're that you're now in the moment? And second of all, the main theory of Tolly, it is that once you're in the moment, you're going to be in perpetual bliss. That is a lie. The reason we all spend our lives trying to escape being conscious is because we're all filled with misery and pain. And once you start to be in the moment, what they call being in the moment, you realize how miserable you are. You realize why you spend your whole day watching YouTube or whatever it is you do. Anyway, that's what I do. Yeah. And I I was just going to respond. It's funny that you mentioned all this, but I had quoted before we started recording that moment from Bert Norton when, uh, from the Four Quartet, when um, Eliot says, um, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Is that and the phrase, that the exact line? That's the exact line. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. By reality, I think what um, Eliot means is that deep awareness of the present, the nowness, whatever happens when he's in that box circle and the light rises from the, um, the drained pool. The lotus rises. And then he leaves the moment with this this line, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And it's always puzzled me because I guess I've been conditioned to think that that absolute presence and now awareness does equate with tranquility and liberation. But the poem is out of that register in an interesting way pretty early on. Um, I'm I'm just pointing out that it's in line with what you were just saying. Do do Hmm. you think that that line would have been improved if Eliot had said, I can't stand very much reality? Hmm. No. Would not be improved. Okay. No, I say it would what not about be. If we, what about if it was, we can't stand very much reality? No. So humankind can't stand very much reality, which I guess, like, includes Mr. Elliot, you know, fumbling around in the garden, you know, examining a uh, lotus, you know, another hackneyed um, symbol. <laughs> and so, but the problem I have with that line is that it does a lot what, a lot of Eliot's poetry does, you know, in his escape from, you know, Prufrockian, you know, which I always thought was a pretty good, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Not right. a bad poem, I thought, sort of a New York school poem, really. <laughs> and, and he's, what, um, like 19 when he writes it. He's very young when he writes right. it. But there's this imperiousness and this sort of mm. above it all attitude, which I think in part, if I may say, Sparrow, may oh. characterize some measure of your antipathy to Eckhart Tolle. I certainly, also hate yes, <laughs> yeah, Certainly his affect when you see him in videos and stuff is kind of humble. At the same time, there's a certain sort of gruntledness kind of can get under your skin. What do you yeah. mean gruntledness? 
You mean the opposite of being disgruntled? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you mean that he's like sort of uh, conceited? Smug. Yeah, maybe a little smug. Kind of like there's a patina of smugness. Like, yeah. you know, I'm in this context. I'm in this stance that is open to all of you. And, you know, I'm lowering this drawbridge made of words and made of my presence, my gaze. Now let us... Open our eyes and gather in the now. <laughs> and it's kind of like, you know, that, that is... Um, Imperious. Mm, rather. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, my experience, my sense of Tolly is that he's telling the truth. He's a sincere person. He's a good person. And uh, he really had this experience. He was a uh, graduate student at Oxford. He was going out of his mind. He was deeply depressed. And he had this breakthrough. And suddenly he was in the now and he was in bliss. I mean, I don't deny, I don't, I don't doubt uh, a single uh, aspect of his story. Uh, what I doubt is that he's going to lead you to happiness through the same, you know, through some little spiel he writes in a book. I don't, the, I don't see that that's going to happen. The therapeutic piece, the, you, 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 you doubt. It lacks a practice. There is no practice. And I, you know, I guess that's sort of where I stand on meditation. I mean, w one of the thoughts I'm, one of the notes I made, which I can't find anymore, was in my vast uh, note making for this session was I was noticing, you know, when you meditate, you realize it's amazing how fast your mind and continually your mind slips away from, let's not say now, but let's just say trying to concentrate on anything. Like it just slips away maybe four times in a second. It's fast. You know, what do they say? There's some famous line, the mind is like a drunken monkey stung by a scorpion. I don't know who said it, some yogi or something. I mean, well, I think that, you know, one thing I would say, you know, it addressing that is that wisdom is faster than thought hmm, yes yeah. so i feel like eckhart is pointing toward that wisdom which is faster than maybe grass um and hmm. perhaps is if not a maybe a state of you know what we conventionally ascribe to intuition hmm. you know i think we've talked about this before you know that Angels exist in a state of intuition. Okay, um, and, and necessarily, Eckhart, I think, is pointing toward, you know, man number four, you know, the possibility of a continuous refrain to a state of... <laughs> <laughs> state of you know i don't know it's it's tough and i think part of eckhart tolle's issue is linguistic and also mm. related to terminology um you know it's difficult to use words to point toward that which is beyond mind that which is beyond the sequentiality and the apparitional nature of thought it might be didn't he write it in German? It might be better in German. I mean, the power of now is a terrible phrase. I mean, just as a phrase, it's ugly, it's meaningless, you know? I mean, it well, sort of suggests think... that he's having some problem with language, you know? Well, do you personally. think that the power of myth is a better title? I think the power of myth is a better title. I mean, the power of anything is kind of a bad title. Unless maybe it's the power of, uh, you know, something, you know, like the power of sleepwalking. Something you don't expect, you know, might be, you know, the power of duckling might, 
you know, those those phrases might be better. But any the power of something that seems like it could be powerful, it just becomes, what's the word, uh, tautological? Uh, well, I think also power, the noun, is also connected up with a kind of intellectual Viagra. <laughs> you know, this kind of I- idea that the power, you know, that there's this power that we have access to, yeah. which can be deployed to you know getting off in one respect or another um, and it, it sells books i'm sure you know it's um it's branded in a way to to sell his wares to sell his, yeah. his books been successful i imagine yeah in the no doubt i think I it's also self-published um i think this thing called the new world library is his huh. own you know i think he makes his own book yeah he, i didn't he know is, Mega dude on a few occasions, and I know uh-huh. that my, outside of Rhinebeck, and I know that my mom has taken, I think, one of his one of his courses. Yeah, I she- met this couple that did like a five day retreat with him, and said it was absolutely fabulous. I think he's a very nice person. That's another thing I think about him. Here's a problem with the power of now. What about ethics? What is the ethic if your whole purpose in life is to live in the moment? What difference does it make whether you're an axe murderer or um, a nurse? You know, like. If, if the only vector is how present you are, what about the whole question of being a good person and doing good deeds? I think he argues, and I do have a recollection of this, I think he argues that if you are in the now, uh-huh. that you're more likely to um, recognize the beauty and history um of other life forms in mm-hmm. a way that influence your ethical decision-making, your orientations as a citizen, your relationship to the environment. Yeah. That's how uh-huh. I understand. I don't think it's a very thick ethics, but I, I do think he makes that connection. I do know that Eckhart Tolle has been used quite a bit by the by environmentalists who have a spiritual bent. Huh. I've never understood that relationship, but I, I know he's put forward as someone who cares a lot about conservation and thinks a lot about ecology. And I just assumed that emerged out of this um, nowness, this presence, this awareness of beauty and mystery and of organic life. Yeah, I would, I would, um, you know, say in like Tibetan terminology that coincident to being in a state of presence is an arising of bodhicitta, but also an arising of bodhicitta, you know, is, is it brings one into a state of presence. So that in the acknowledgement of the emptiness, there's an arising, there's a emotional field that is opened up to you in which you have a state of, you know in Western terminology, I guess would be equivalent to compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, that you're feeling with compassion, passion with, that you're feeling an empathy, you know, yeah. I mean, my group, Ananda Marga, like never talks about being in the moment. I don't think that's, I think that comes a little bit more out of Zen is how I... I'd see it as like closer to Zen than any other tradition. Like my group is, you know, tends towards uh, having a uh, devotional approach, devotional preference. There's different types of yoga. There's like whatever, eight maybe different types of yoga. And and my guru says that, you know, the bhakti, the yoga of devotion, the path of pure love of God is the sort of surest fastest, most reliable path. And um, I suppose if you're madly in love with God or with your guru or, you know, however you practice your bhakti, then you are presumably in the moment. But, you know, you're living in the now, but it's not uh, emphasized. But in Zen, 
that tends to be gravitational center. That's the the focus. I mean, I don't know if I think mindfulness, the, the practice that people call mindfulness, comes right out of Zen, and mindfulness is pretty close to what we're talking about about being in the moment. Yeah, I think those things have to do with the shattering of conceptual mind. Hmm. You know, that's the... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's schizophrenic. You know, this whole idea of shattering and, and so on and splitting, you know, splitting open. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, and I think that a lot of my issue has to do with the word now. Um, huh. You know, A, because my thesis is far more directed toward the uh, being with in the breath, uh-huh. in the tautological, in the infinitude of breathing, um, in understanding the nature of that which is around us, uh, the nature of the universe, the tautologies that go back to the beginning of creation, but also that the, that the breath is physical. It involves breathing, you know, so you're taking the outside and you're bringing it in. The inside is being brought out. It involves, you know, that sort of five second envelope so that that's a a length of time that you can actually be in and absorb. It has a compositional nature and it even has a little bit of the gunpowder at the start of narrative you know there's a sequentiality to it yeah Um, i know that's that's one thought i had about now is that if you really lived in the moment and i think there's a uh book by who was that famous neurologist that uh, brings up all these weird cases he writes all these books yeah oliver sacks like he talks about some guy who lives in the moment, who uh, he cannot remember more than four seconds in the past. And this guy is in torment. You know, he's in hell because uh, he is aware. He's aware enough to realize that he has no history, he has no sense of time. Everything is constantly happening in the present. And and I it seems to me if you actually lived in the now, you would be like living in a series of still photographs. There would be no narrative. There would be no story uh, whatsoever. There would just be a series of little snapshots that you're constantly in. So I think when people say live in the now, live in the present, they really mean to live in about a two-minute or three-minute period, I think. Since you started washing the carrots and before you chopped them or something like that. Dude, I don't know. (laughs) Two minutes, you know, that's a game-changing, you know, (laughs) you know. Two it could minutes. be 30 seconds, you know. Yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, I understand what you're saying is that to actually be in the now, you need to be closer to a, a tree, you need <laughs> to be closer to a, you know, and maybe something that we construe as inanimate, like a boulder. Mm. I mean, but you're saying that being in the now would be a cessation of thought. A cessation of of any, of motion. There'd be no movement takes place over time. Movement can't take place in a a millisecond. Right. In the now. Right. And that's one of my, that's my major, that actually trumps my, oh, excuse me, that actually (laughs) supersedes my former, you know, critique is that 
The problem with now is that while its origin is outside of time, that is that the Anglo-Saxons didn't, they, they didn't, they, <laughs> it was an amplifier. Their use of now had to do with immediacy and it was outside, it didn't have to do with time. Now mm. is outside of space and time. It's now. not, it's not in its use of now a temporal marker. It has to do with being or art. As Aristotle said, art has to do with the representation of being. Mm. I think he would have been better off, Meister Tolley, if he'd named it the art of now. Oh, but he would have sold less, as uh, Andrew shrewdly uh, pointed out. A the art less. of something is going to sell less than the power of something. It would have sold less. I agree. But yeah. it would have been more true, and it would have allowed us to enter into a proposition. Well, I think people like us Greater maybe agility. are suspicious of power. In fact, the term power has become uh, a pejorative. If you talk about a power relationship, which is what which is the only thing people talk about anymore, uh, between two people, the one who has the power is the worse one. <laughs> you know, It's yeah, never... Yeah. That the more power you have, the better you are. What more about the? What about you, this? To say. What about this? What about the flower of now? The flower of now. I like uh, that. Then, yeah, then we're like so getting back to Bert Norton. Yeah, the flower of now. I it's like a little that. bit more uh, like uh, Apollinaris, <laughs> the like the flowers of evil. <laughs> the flower of anything is pretty good, you know. The yeah. flower of patience. Well, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, I wonder what Baudelaire would have to say about the power of now. Yeah, yeah. it's hard to imagine him being into it because he's a flaneur, isn't he? A flaneur. Like a flaneur is someone who like wanders around looking at things. He's not in a moment. Yeah, who wanders. And, and also, yeah. I have this whole theory that I was going to bring up anyway, that this is a very recent idea. This whole idea of being in the now started in 1971. I looked it up. I was certain that Be Here Now came out in 1971, but I had to check just in case. And uh, indeed it did. And... Uh, you know, before 1971, you never heard anyone say, oh, I wish I was more in the moment. You know, because everyone was in the moment. If you read Chaucer, nobody is like, oh, I just feel like I'm not really sufficiently experiencing uh, my life. They're thinking, I'm worried I'm going to go to hell. You know, they're worried about the future. They're not worried about being in the now. But now, well, once there was television pervaded everything. I, my parents bought a TV when I was born, 1953, supposedly to watch the Army McCarthy here, you know, for like a benevolent anti, it's you know, fascist. Yes. But anyway, 53 to 71, that's 18 years. It took that long before people were, had so narcotized themselves. People had, were, had, had lost all ability to exist at all without some artificial machine entertaining them that the idea of being in the now was a suddenly exciting. 1971. I think you're spot on to historicize it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's super interesting it's thesis. Super interesting. Yeah, it, you know, whether it's a, in psychoanalysis, too. Uh, the, in the age of psychoanalysis, the focus was very much on the regressive, on the past, right? Yeah. Um, you know, going back to those early wounds, going back to those early complexes, <laughs> <laughs> those neurotic knots that get tighter and tighter 
as we move through time. Uh, you know, it's yeah. it's interesting. My uh, friend uh, Michael Ruby he uh. posits that the only the past is real <laughs> because the past is visible. It's you know, we can't be in the future. We can only acknowledge that which is around us. And that it all is occurring within a temporal schema in the past. Well, and also the physical world. Like I'm looking around me, I'm looking at my laptop, I'm looking at my space heater, looking at my dictionary. Uh, everything was created in the past. Everything yeah. rounds all of us is an artifact of the past. Well, you know the rap of uh, somebody like Neil Cassidy, oh. who had a penchant for taking amphetamines for taking speed because his these his experience was that he was always an eighth of a second behind reality oh yeah that he was existing that. within this and he was constantly trying to narrow that gap narrow that pressure no, but i think that, he felt that, that everyone out, what I think he thought everyone can behind reality. Like, I think that physiologically we are. Well, we're, our nervous system travels at 200, blah, blah, two, circa 200 miles an hour, so that our sensorium is attached to a tool that has that speed. And so, yeah, you know, and then it has, has a lag. It has, there's a lag time for sure. Yeah. Everything we see happened in the past. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so I think this idea of the past having been the primary garden of psychoanalysis, yeah. right, mm -hmm. Andrew? Yeah, that's correct. And then this idea of the present was not foregrounded because we didn't have a way of shattering the present except you know through meditation getting drunk getting high Psychi getting laid psychedelics well, psychedelics didn't emerge until uh hoffman that was 48 yes except accidentally yeah 48 yeah. but i think and then maybe the insertion also of television and distraction like that stuff's the enemy of being present is it or not i don't know maybe you're present while you're watching there's some Zen story, I don't know if I ever told it here, where like the, some Zen master tells his student, uh, you know, always do what you're doing. Don't distract yourself. So one day the student comes down and the uh, and the monk is reading the newspaper and eating his breakfast. And I, the, the student says, wait a second, I thought you told me only to do what you're doing. And he said, that's what I'm doing. I'm reading the newspaper and eating my breakfast, you know. <laughs> so like maybe watching TV is is itself. I mean, probably you're to re in truth, you're probably more in the moment when you're watching TV than any other time because you're, you know, really paying attention more than yeah, you do to your life. Totally. I totally agree with that. But I think you're, but you were making a historical thesis. Yeah. Yeah. And I think outside of that, that maybe people, once there was something like TV that involves the visual cortex coupled with the auditory, coupled with our storytelling uh, organ, mm. that we suddenly became dis like distraction became, was brought out into higher relief. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a way that people could distract themselves to death that didn't exist. I believe that in the era of radio, a family would sit together in a room, the father would turn on the radio, Everyone would listen to this half-hour show in Ovaltine commercials. It was like going to the vaudeville theater. It was like a show on a in a in a theater. 
except you didn't see anything. This TV got really moving, where you had either a remote control, I don't know when the remote was invented, but you could you could channel surf even before there was a remote. And, and so then you're just constantly distracting yourself and distracting yourself from your distractions to other distractions. That's when it got to the point where, you know, you could really take your mind way out of your normal consciousness, <laughs> way out of the world you live in. Yeah, like a real split, like a real separation. Mm. Also, 1966, I looked it up. That's when NOW was founded, the National Organization of Women. And I think, like, if we're going to be three white guys discussing life, we have to at least discuss the fact that NOW also means the National Organization of Women, and um, which is an amazing acronym. What a brilliant acronym. It's like... Totally. We're women, and it's now. We yeah. want it now. Absolutely. Around the same year, I think 67 is when uh, uh, Jim Morrison sang, We Want the World, and We Want It Now. Little pause before that now. Yeah, right so, on. You know, it's so interesting to uh. develop this historical thesis. I think, Sparrow, your research is um, illuminating. <laughs> yeah. I'm aware of the degree to which um, Eckhart Tolle or Ram Das and others, this notion of um, being in the moment has really become the new secular religion. Yeah, um, you can't you can't say, you can't argue to somebody, I don't want to be in the moment. No. The hell with the moment. Now, nobody, you're not allowed. You can say there's no God. You can say I love Satan. But you can't say I don't want to be in the moment. No, it's, it's not allowed. Heretical. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really heretical. heretical. And I. I realize that everyone's screaming at me, I feel, constantly to be more in the present. <laughs> yeah. I think the first thing, I don't know if I said this when uh, at, when we were discussing something earlier, I was going to, is like parents now say to their kids, like the, the kid is upset and the parents say, okay, now breathe, breathe, breathe deep. You know, the parents are now meditation instructors for their kids. You know, this is like universe, I guess maybe not. I think it's a class thing. I think working class kids just beat their kids. Working class parents hit their kids and threaten them. And middle class parents try to teach them to meditate. Yeah, we had this thing with the kids who were raising them where we they would be acting up at the diner. Um, <laughs> and we'd say, oh, wait, wait. Okay, girls, let's do Zen Master. <laughs> and they'd be like, yeah, 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 Zen Master. And they would be quiet, you know, for a little while. <laughs> And what was Zen Master? Just they had to be quiet or they would Yeah, be... yeah, they would uh, enter into a cessation of thought and enter into just pure observation, principally focused on just breathing in and out quietly for a while. Mm -hmm. but, but I must say that I, I feel um, that being in the present, trying to focus on now has been helpful to me as well. Uh -huh. I, and in what way? Well, I mean, for me, um, I had a therapist who I continued oh. pretty good. And her big thing was constantly, okay, I hear what you're, you're saying, but how are you feeling right now? You know, how, uh -huh. are you, how are you feeling right now as we're speaking in this instant? And I was really resistant to that. I thought it was hokey and... Mm. Uh, I didn't see the therapeutic value, but more recently, I have become more aware of the ecology of my emo emotions in any present moment in, in a way that I think um, is leading to some degree of integration. So um, I just want to put that forward as something positive and therapeutic that emerged out of like, I don't know if it's nowness, more of an awareness of, in this case, psycho-emotional 
layers that have always existed, but that I maybe choose not to look at, or I don't know how to access. I mean, to really, I, you know, to continue my whatever string of generalizations, I think it's a real danger of being a man that you tend to abstract everything and say, well, I'm a people person. I uh, have a lot of anxiety. Whereas maybe women are a little more conscious of like what's going on this moment really right now, as opposed to these theories we have about ourselves. And yeah. I, I agree. I think uh, figuring out what your emotions are right now is great. I don't see it exactly the same as this kind of bogus mysticism about being in the moment, because it's a little more like a inventory you're making of yourself. Correct. It's a little more of a, what's the word, uh, effort. It's a, it's a process you're doing. It's not so much tempting to do nothing, to s cease all effort. And that was your critique of Edgar Tolle from earlier, that there was no practice involved. There was no right. there was right, no operation, spiritual operation or physical technique, that it was an idea. Well, that there's nothing well, to I... hold on to. You know, that's the thing about meditation or my experience of meditation is you're, you know, it's a little bit like floating in space or something. You know, you close your eyes, you, you, you don't know where you are, you, nothing's happening. How do you handle that dislocation? Mm. And essentially what meditation is, as I understand it is, even Zen meditation is, here's a, uh, a process, you focus on this, hold on to this, grab onto this, because everything else is falling away or could fall. I mean, um, my understanding is at the back of all this is also the Gurdjieff Uspensky work. Hmm. You know, historically speaking, that movement had a sort of was a real big ground force behind all this. Hmm. And in part, what Gurdjieff would say is that principally human beings go through their lives in a state of sleep, which has also become like a terrifically um, popular mm. trope of, of our psychophysical hygiene or, you know, clarity, I think is the other, you know, thing that they say. But his, but Gurdjieff's thing would principally be we're in a state of sleep because we're in a state of disintegration that mm. our, that our three brains are not integrated and that that's what causes people to um, not have full lives. Mm -hmm. Is that exactly it? It's not. It's core spiritual evolution, you know, that our people are impeded in their spiritual evolution, psychological evolution, evolution of human consciousness. Right. What are the three minds? Oh, oh the spine. Your spinal column is kind oh. of the mind of your like um, physical body and sensorium, you know. And then your your uh, emotional, your heart, your solar plexus, you mm. know. And for most people, your heart is broken, usually at around the age of seven, or you know, mm. sometimes people last longer. Really, when school starts. Oh. And then your other mind is your um, is this thinking, you know, is the brain. Mm. What we construe as the brain, yeah, you know, and and that has to do with ratiocination, logic. Puzzle solving, memory, large capacity for memory, um, mm. and for conceiving a world. You know, our proprioception, though, is really more connected to our spine, you know, to our physical like body. Like our sort of uh, hands physical and body. feet are more collected, connected to the spine. Right. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And by our spine, you know, nobody pays attention. 
What if it was the spine of now? <laughs> it's kind of a weird phrase. It's creepy. But the spine kind of. is like this fantastic organ that we spend very little time really, you know, yeah, thinking about. You know, it's true. It could also it's sort be of very much a focus of meditation. I, I, I told, guess yoga. Yeah. I told you right that um, for a few years I was dropping into this nail salon um, on the Upper West Side on Amsterdam Avenue where there was a... Um, a Chinese gentleman who spoke no English who um, would give massages. It was like $5 for maybe a dollar a minute. So you can get a five-minute massage for, for $5 or a 10-minute massage for $10. This is a nail salon? A nail salon. Yeah, and uh -huh. they would rub people's necks and shoulders as they got pedicures and manicures. But I discovered it, and I went in there. And he would consistently work with my spine. Huh. Um, I didn't tell him to do so. He just gravitated to my spine and he would release some energy through the work really? of the spine that was deeply neurological. At one point, it made me feel like almost orgasmic. It was embarrassing. And ah! uh, I, you know, he was able to do something through the manipulation of the spine, these gentle movements elongating the spine. He mm. clearly knew what he was up to. I have no words. What, uh, what kind of guy was he? He was Chinese. He was a chain smoker. He spoke huh. no English, and um, he disappeared one day. One day I the went to Milan, and he was just no longer there. So you didn't uh, ask him. Uh, you didn't ask the rest of the people where to go. I didn't. I said I was here. Oh, he no longer worked here. You know. Um, right. Dude, I'm really feeling an essay kind of emerging out of this. You know, that would be entitled "The Power of Spine." <laughs> And you would introduce that story, and then you would, you know, kind of talk about Eckhart Tolle in some way, and et cetera. I don't know. <laughs> Does that I, story surprise you, Sam? Does that is that in line with your understanding of the spine and its power and its mystery? Well, I mean, just as we can collect fat, you know, <laughs> in our bodies, like around our bodies. I believe we can also connect, you know, uh, have concentrations of sort of neurological energy, like fat, that you can release uh -huh. and that has a certain electrical uh, pulse that can cause events in one's in one's mind, in one's you know, in one's being. For sure, yeah, so much power of spine. And it's also reminded me of this guy. There's a guy like. Uh, in my dad's neighborhood in Brooklyn in Windsor Terrace and he's a um, he well he's retired now but he used to run this uh, Korean fruit and vegetable stand and uh, he was missing like two fingers two and a half fingers he was an old guy who spoke very little English um, and I would buy you know an orange from him he worked at night and once in a while I'd buy something from him and gradually I came to feel that this guy was like like a bodhisattva like like a saint you know like a really deep person and actually i eventually uh introduced him to my wife and my dog because just by chance we were walking by and you know he was just so kind to them so sweet you know he would say something like how are you doing you know and then you would say something and he'd say, you know, something like, good, good. Then I got to know a little bit his grandson, who now runs the fruit and vegetable stand. I said, how did he lose those fingers? He said, and the grandson said, well, there's different stories about it. One story is it was in the Korean War. There's another story. You know, like, no one knows. <laughs> huh. You know, these mystical figures that kind of whatever inhabit our 
the world of New York, you know, that kind of yeah. like like keep the city from like spiritually collapsing. You know, I think they like also gravitate energy. They gravitate to cities generally, but you can get some out here in the sticks. The one thing I'd say is that relative to the spine, you also may have ex- had some Kundalini experience, right? right. Maybe well, that's the third brain. My my wife Elisa had a very frightening episode with the kundalini energy shooting up the spine into her cranium that created some like psychotic episodes she was doing yoga or something yeah, Kundalini yoga. Yeah, huh? yeah I've heard that. I've heard it could make you psychotic. Yeah, just like delusional. It was very, very um, frightening um, for everyone. Yeah. This is with her. You were living with her when this happened. I was, yeah. I didn't, didn't handle it so well I, I, because I didn't understand it. It was threatening. Yeah, well, it's hard to live with a psychotic for whatever reason, I would say. You need a very strong snake trainer. Um, <laughs> but, the, but the power which we are sitting on in our physical dimension, the mm. access to super horizons of experience um, beyond normative ones is uh, infinite, but also dangerous. You know, it's whiskey. Yeah. You know what? For some reason, I've been. I wanted to quote this line from uh, a Bob Dylan song. I guess it must be just like Tom Thumb's blues. And um, um, and maybe you can help me, Andrew, because I forgot to look it up. It's something like you see that one-eyed midget shouting the word now. You walk up to him and you say how, and he says to you, "You're a cow. Give me some milk, or else." Go home. And you know something's happening, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Well, Jones? Ballad of a Thin Man, right? Ballad of a Thin Man, right. That's the right. Yeah, I got the wrong title. But I got some, I didn't get the lyrics exactly right, but it definitely, I'm pretty sure about that line. You see the one eyed midget shouting the word now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I have to ask you, uh, Sparrow, do you, or Andrew, I should ask maybe, what was the year in which that was composed? 1960, oh, 1965. I would say 65, but I'm not positive. Could have been 66. Interesting. You got the yeah. Dylan sort of within that historical trajectory would yeah. be prior to now. That oh, yeah. Is, and I, and I did go through. organization. And prior to, uh, you know, be here now. So good. Yeah. And also there was a lot of other now in the 60s. Uh, out now. That you'd be at a peace demonstration and you might shout out now or you might shout peace now. And, you know, I was a teenager, but I was in those demonstrations shouting those uh, phrases. So there was something about now that was, you know, which is logical because the 60s was kind of a now decade. It was kind of about now but i did go through a period of thinking you know today i think while i was doing my yoga like the one-eyed midget shouting the word now who is that one-eyed midget maybe a clock because uh, a clock is small like a midget a clock has one eye because it only looks at one dimension only looks at time and it shouts the word now you know metaphorically speaking and another possibility is the one-eyed midget is uh, the media or the news, which is only concerned with what's happening right now, and which is sort of relevant to uh, uh, Ballad of a Thin Man, which seems to be about a, a journalist. Journalist, right. You have a good memory for the verse. I can read it. I have it. Oh, yes, yeah, read it. I want to get it correct. Now you see this one-eyed midget shouting the word now. 
And you say, for what reason? And he says, how? And you say, what does this mean? And he screams back, you're a cow. Give me some milk or else go home. And you know something's happening, but you don't know what it is, do you? Mr. Jones. Ah, thanks. So I'm reading a kind of double sense of now. What do you mean? Uh, that he, that Dylan is using the phrase now in two sense senses. You know, with that background story of journalism. But ah. I think he's also using it in the sense of that temporal, like what's happening now. You know, what's fashionable, etc. At the same time, using it in the sense of the present. You know, like what's happening now. What time is it? You and know? also, you know, this midget is shouting the word now in no context you know it's like it's pretty strange what does the word now mean if it's not used in a sentence it almost lacks any meaning which is i think what's driving the thin man crazy that he's trying to figure out how can you just use the word now without any even peace now which is two words, is a little clear what it means. Where it's just somebody, imagine somebody who's just shouting the word now. Yeah, it's, it's meaningless. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. The shouting of the word now is a, hey, boss, should I pull, What? let me know when I should pull the trigger. Right. You know, okay, now, in that sense, declamatory, or I think it's interrogative. Uh, Interjection. Uh, inter- <laughs> <no>. <laughs> it could be a, uh, what's that word? Uh, ejaculation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, Ejaculation is like he gad or oh my. I got it. Isn't it uh, evo- evocative? Evocative. Evocative. It's evocative. Yeah. What is evocative? It's like a function for calling. Yeah. Pull the trigger now. It's evocative. It's one of the yeah. uh, five declensions of Latin. Huh. Yeah. So I, what does it do? It, it's like a sort of instructive word. It tells you what to do. Yeah, with, with emphasis. And it's usually followed by an exclamation point. It's a call. Vocative, I think, is a, is also a call where you're um, making. I think it's connected to command. Vocative. Ah. Yeah. I mean, it, it could imply lots of things. The word now. Right. I mean, like you're saying, it could be now is the time to do it, or it could just mean. Uh, well, I was thinking of the phrase now, 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 <laughs> which is like you say that to someone who's really upset, who's angry, who's uh, troubled, you say now, now, now. Something you say to a child. Now, Maybe one thing child. I wanted to, to say is I actually have Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. Okay. Um, I have a volume that I picked up, Sparrow, at Family. Oh, yeah, my favorite place to get books. Yeah. And um, so I was thinking I could ro- open it at random. Oh, that's a good idea in the present and I'll read one sentence will be disciplined and then we can discuss its efficacy. I believe that there may be in this book a some practices that you can do, okay. by the way. I never gonna, I don't know anything about it. Okay. So I wanted to read you this sentence. The body can become a point of access into the realm of being. That's the whole sentence? Yeah. Huh. But there's another sentence that follows it. But I said I would be disciplined. The body can become a point of access into the realm of being. Hmm. Well, doesn't that relate to what you were saying earlier, Sam, about the breath Hmm. and the implication of the body in the breath as a means of anchoring one in the present, the here and now? Is that what Tolle is after here? Well, echoing 
Tole, it does seem to be like a point of access into this cave, mm. into the cave of unknowing. Yeah. I mean, it, it really makes me suspicious, which I already was, that this guy does not have a real theory. You know, why the body? Is he just being poetic? Is he saying somehow there's some kind of body consciousness that, that he's trying to go for? Or is he just being kind of vague? And, you know, it does seem like maybe if you're going to be in the now, you're going to be a little bit more aware of your body than usual because usually your head is kind of floating away from your body you know metaphorically speaking but the body is a portal how is it a portal like well, i think he he means it almost in a sort of sexual way sexual yeah huh. um you know in terms of a portal access and so forth but i think that what he's pointing toward is a non-separate state you know, non-separateness. Hmm. Between the body and the mind. Yeah, maybe yeah, he means you know, that if you really become conscious of your body, then you, if you're totally aware of what your body is feeling, then you're by definition in the, what was the phrase? Access to what? Hey, Infinity? dude, man. I, I closed, I opened the book. I read it a few times. I closed the book. It was access to it's being. To being, being, yes, being. To the realm of being. Realm. Yeah. Which I find a little, like, when I say non-separate, I mean, like, everything is is non-same. Everything is. There's no separate, you know, there's no, everything is. I mean, and that's what now is, is it, is it, I don't know. That was very, apologize. It's difficult to get into this. (laughs) This is like high wire act. No, it's all part of the great experiment. But Sam, you, you refer to the cave of something as metonymous for being what what did you say the cave of unknowing the cave, and you were referring to the cave of unknowing that's inside of us but that i was referring to the now in knowing <laughs> okay you mean well, the word the now, now that's in the word knowing in the cave okay well um i just want to um share anecdotally this notion of the body as a portal um does bring me back to something i was discussing with sam prior to recording when sparrow you were preparing your introduction i believe you were doing something yeah i was compiling my notes you were compiling your notes and that that's um i've been dreaming very vividly lately um in a visionary sort of way for the first time since childhood and um i can talk in a future occasion if anyone's anyone's interested in some of the prompts some of the reasons why but one thing that i've done that's really helped me open up i guess some awareness of i'll just use some jungian terminology um Mm. Awareness of these archetypes, these potent archetypes that are coming out of my subconscious Mm. by um, changing um, my body chemistry insofar as I haven't touched alcohol in a month and I'm THC free for a while. And something about that metabolic shift, I don't know what it is exactly. A mental difference has just um, unfrozen tundra and there's just a lot coming out that that feels very meaningful. There's a lot of emotion coming out. I wouldn't Mm. reduce to not drinking the fire water but i i do know that that's part of it the body has is has been an access point for me for this Mm. cave of unknowing whether it's on the inside or the outside who knows you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) share that as um an association to the line that's in so you're saying like like following this new regime diet you could call it 
practice regime is changing your body and giving you access to uh, the realm of being. I think it is. And I'm eating less and I'm Mm -hmm. eating sugar and only eating not to be hungry. I'm not eating for aesthetic pleasure right now. I think there's an invisible force that is also acting upon you that is not compassed in those... I think those sound all like fostering a receptivity, but I believe that there's an invisible force that is also courting you, Andrew, and that I would definitely tune in to that and follow that dance, that music. Yeah, sounds really promising. Even thinking about it makes me feel emotional. It's, it's, it, and I'm, I'm, I'm not. It's very. It's very new. I don't. I, I'm. It's, I, I'm. I'm going through something. Or it could be the other way around that you're. You're the changes you're making. The changes that are going on inside of you are inspiring you to give up alcohol and marijuana at least for the time being. Like it could be that you know that's the problem with earthly life you don't know what's causing what yeah that's for sure yeah but i do think that you can identify that which is true and to Mm. trust your nerve Mm. yeah yeah i mean it i mean the thing that i'm always trying to do is kind of work with my intuition like you know let's say if i have two choices oh like today, I had to decide whether to put uh, mustard seeds in my stew. <laughs> and uh, I like mustard seeds a lot. And my wife doesn't like them that much. They've become kind of a cliche of my cooking. And I was looking at the mustard seed, the little container of mustard seeds, and I was like, well, do you want to be in the stew or not? Like, I'll leave it up to you. You know, like, just try to feel whether the mustard seeds are supposed to go in the stew or not. And it was very close. You know, it was like a... 60-40 split, but finally I decided, no, you know, I'm going to leave them out. So, I mean, I'm that's something I'm trying to work on all the time in myself, is uh, my intuitional practice. Farah, you've got something you want to read? Yeah, I want to read uh, number seven from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, the famous uh, translation by Edward Fitzgerald from the 19th century. So I'm going to read it twice because it's a little hard to follow. So this is Omar Khayyam, you know, he's the uh, drunken, mystic, uh, Turkish uh, poet. Come, fill the cup, and in the fire of spring, the winter garment of repentance fling, the bird of time has but a little way to fly. And lo, the bird is on the wing. (laughs) So I think what's happening in this poem is it's springtime. Read it again. Yeah, I'm going to read it again, but first I want to try to explain it. Okay. You know, it's springtime, time to get drunk, time to stop your, to throw off the winter garment of repentance that uh, now our friend Andrew has taken on. You know, time to stop all this uh, abstemiousness and, uh, you know, uh, spiritual. you know, uh, renunciation and just enjoy yourself because the bird of time is is flying. It's about to leave. Things, you only have this moment. That's what I think it means. Here I am reading it again. Seven, come fill the cup and in the fire of spring, the winter garment of repentance flame. The bird of time has but a little way to fly. And lo, the bird is on the wing. So what you're saying is that he's <laughs> advocating, if I may say, deep-sixing repentance. Yes, 
which has to do with the past mm. and propitiation to the past. So what do you think about that, Andrew, relative to your recent experiences? Well, I mean, I would say um, renunciation or some element of it has been part of that flowering. Brain. <laughs> For me, one has led to the other. Um, they're related to one another. I don't know. The relationship in the poem is what? That cast off the garment of winter and burn it, essentially? Oh, I don't know if he's saying burn it. Uh, maybe yeah i think you're right in the fire i didn't i had didn't catch that yeah throw he says fling the winter garment of a repentance in the fire of spring i guess that's right I guess so but this idea of touching fire to your repentance renunciation releases a kind of fire hmm. Yeah, so it could have an alchemical edge to it, particularly with that cup. Well, Robert Graves wrote this famous essay where he said uh, that Edward Fitzgerald was completely wrong about Omar Khayyam. He was a Sufi mystic. He was not in favor of drinking wine all the time, lying around with pretty girls and just goofing off. That those were all symbols, metaphors for mystic understanding. I'm not giving this as advice, as spiritual advice. I just, I like the I like the poem a lot, but I think it is quite possible that Fitzgerald is violating all the real true beliefs of Omar Khayyam. That sounds kind of true. Was Fitzgerald a flanner? <laughs> I, I just assume he was an Irish drunk. I think we're going to have to cut that out because it's, you know, politically incorrect to say. But I don't, well, I don't know that he was quite a flaneur. If, if, I'm just teasing. <laughs> I don't think that. I didn't Shit. think that was. We got it. We have to stop now. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.